Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we left off. We're at the last section of this glorious chapter, verses 32 through 40. Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 40. As you're finding that, I I just want to mention out of appreciation our worship team. I mean, they're they're just so good. You know, I was just looking at that song they led us through there during the offering. Like, Dwayne started out over there, but then he ended up over there, and Mark was over there, then he ended up over there. JT was there, and then he ended up there, and Octavia's looking lovely as usual, and Paul is just doing well. I mean, come on, these people are, they lead us well. Praise God. (laughs) Praise the Lord. We need this text today. We're, We're coming to the end of our journey through Hebrews in general. And we're coming to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, which is one of, the, it's one of the mountain peaks of all of the Bible. It's a famous chapter. And it's not a chapter that exists on its own, because all of Hebrews has been this exposition. It's been a sermon by a preacher to a people who were discouraged, who were doubting, who were under the press of the Roman government that was persecuting them. They were dealing with their own sin, maybe spiritual laziness, and this is one long exhortation to not give up. It's a theological exposition on the betterness, the superiority, the supremacy of Christ. How the whole Old Testament points to Jesus, and that's what chapters 1 through 10 have been. But chapter 11 now is doctrine on display. It's real people with real faults and real discouragements and real situations, and the author, the preacher, is saying, look back at these people that have come before you. They held on. You can too. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 11, and we get into this last little section here, which I'm going to be honest with you. You know, when you're preaching, you scan through books that you're going to preach, and you think, oh, man, that text will preach, you know, and you look forward to it, and then you look at some others, and you're like, ah. And I confess that maybe when I looked at Hebrews chapter 11, I was like, well, what, what, what are you going to do with this? Well, I'm glad to report that I spent some time looking at this text, and it is rich with gospel nutrition. So let's get into it. Here's the, here's the outline. I've got, I'm breaking it down into three parts. Conquering faith, enduring faith, and approved faith. I think that's the outline of our text, verses 32 through 35. Conquering faith, verses 35 through 38. Enduring faith, and then... The last couple verses, approved faith. Let me pray, and we're going to go along this text. Lord, help us. Thank you that we can sing, that we can open our Bibles, that we can gather. Lord, we need this text. There's people in this room who need this text. They need, they need the steel and the spine. They need the gospel nutrients that this text has for us, so I pray that you would do your work in your people and that you would do wonderful things in any that don't yet believe and you would cause them to believe today for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, for the joy of your church. I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let me read verses 32 through 35, conquering faith. Remember, he's given us all these examples, more famous examples. You know, he starts with Abel and Enoch and then Moses, and then he spends a lot of time on Abraham, and then Moses was a big part of last week, and now now he's going to kind of pick up the pace a little bit and skim through a, a large part of Israel's history. And the writer says, and what more can I say, verse 32, time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women, verse 35, received their dead. They were raised to life again. All right, let me pause there and just explain what I think this portion of the text is saying. I think it's pointing us to a type of conquering faith. In fact, look at verse 33. It says that they conquered kingdoms, who by faith they conquered kingdoms. He's speeding up, and it's this kind of a rhetorical device or a literary device where he's saying, what more can I say? Time is too short, and he just... Instead of going in-depth like he did with the other figures that he pointed them to, just rattles off a few people that for us, we might be relatively familiar, at least with the bigger names, maybe like Gideon and maybe David and Samuel. But he, he rattles off several famous figures in the history of Israel. And the, the first century Jewish listeners to this sermon that were being persecuted by the Roman Empire would have certainly been very familiar. This was part of their national history. And so what is the point that he's making? The author is continuing on in Israel's history, and he he rattles off a few, in particular, famous scenes or people in the book of Judges. Now, it's important for us to understand that the book of Judges recounts the time. It's right after Joshua. It's right after the conquest of the promised land. And Judges begins off with Joshua, this leader of Israel, dying. And then it's this, this, this descent into godlessness in Israel. And even then, this is informative, even in this darkest of all dark days in the nations, in the history of Israel, the writer of Hebrews is pointing back to examples of conquering faith in the life of Israel even during these dark times. And he starts with several examples, and these examples are are really instructive. He starts with Gideon, who we may be familiar with as this man who God raised up to lead an army that the, 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 he has a several thousand, but God whittles it down to 300 men. And, and with these 300 men, Gideon defeats the, the Midianites, I think it is. But even before that, I think it's in, in, in Judges chapter 5, Gideon is portrayed as, as, a, as kind of a weak man. He's, he's doubting, and he doesn't have faith in God. God speaks to him, and he says, okay, God, I'll, I'll believe you if... You, 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 you do this sign for me, and he's, he lays out this fleece, and he says, you know what, okay, I'm going if, if, to go to bed, and if, you, if I wake up in the morning, and the fleece is, if the, if the blanket is, is wet, and the, the ground is dry, then I'll believe you, and, and that happens. God does it, and then he's like, oh, okay, God, okay, it, let, let's do it the other way. Let me, let me do it one more night, and if the, this time, if the, the fleece is dry, and the ground is wet, or whatever, he kind of reverses the, 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 the ask of God, and it happens. And so really, we might think of Gideon as this great man of faith, but Gideon, actually, this man who's in this section of conquering faith, is kind of a weak man who needs God to hold him by his hand in order to accomplish his purposes through him. The same thing with Barak. 
Barak is this military leader in the life of Israel in Judges chapter 4. And what's going on in Judges chapter 4 is, is Judges is, is a, it's, it's the narrative of the leadership of these judges in the life of Israel. And when, when you hear the word judges in the Old Testament, don't think so much of like a courtroom in the United States, but more think of like a kind of a quasi-military governmental leader in the life of Israel. Not quite a king but uh, an, an authority figure, a governmental leader who decides things, judges things for Israel. And at this particular time in, in, in Judges chapter 4, God has raised up this woman named Deborah, which in a sense is an indictment of the weakness of the men in Israel at the time. Not that women are co-equal in, in glory with, with men before the Lord, but certainly there are different roles. And one of the things that's going on in Israel is that no men are able to assume this role, and Deborah rises up as a judge by God's appointment, and there's this military leader named Barak, who's being referenced here in our text, and he, Deborah has to kind of call him out and say, you know, you, you lead the men into battle against this particular enemy that, that Israel is facing at the time, and, and Barak says, well, I'll go into battle if you go with me, Deborah, and Deborah's kind of like, well, okay, I'll go. But you're not going to get the glory for it. You know, I, they're going to say that I was in, in Barak. Barak is presented in, in Judges chapter 4 as a timid figure who needs this woman to go with him into battle. And yet he's being referenced here as somebody along with this kind of doubting Gideon as a man of conquering faith. And then there's Samson. Samson is not an ideal figure. Yes, he was a man of great strength, but he was a man given over to his lusts. He was terribly flawed, controlled by his passions. And then there's this man named Jephthah. Now Jephthah, read Judges 11 sometime at your leisure this week, and it's a, it's a crazy tale. Basically, Jephthah was, a, was the illegitimate son of this man by this prostitute. So this man's wife didn't like Jephthah, so they kind of they ostracized him. And he goes and lives into the hills, and he basically becomes kind of a thug, like a little mob boss. There's this really interesting verse in Judges chapter 11 where it says, and imagine if this is the description of you if you make it into the Bible. It says that Jephthah gathered around himself worthless men. Well, he wasn't, he, that's who he was. And yet Israel's in such a bad spot that they go to Jephthah and they say, look, we know you're kind of tough and we need you to fight for us. And, Jephthah, and they say, if you will help us win this war, then we will make you leader of Israel. So they have to make a bargain with this thug who's retreated to the hills and is basically a, a bad dude gathering around him a bunch of rebels and worthless guys. And Jephthah, seizing the opportunity, says, okay, I'll do it. And he actually comes... And he wins the war, but he says, this is amazing. In Judges chapter 11, Jephthah makes this vow before the Lord. He says to the Lord, God, if you will give me success in battle, I will kill, I will sacrifice the next thing that my eyes lay on, the next thing that I see come out of my door in the morning, that I see I will sacrifice it before you if you give me this victory. And that's not a righteous vow. That, that is an indication that Jephthah had taken on the spirit of the Canaanites, the, the pagans in the land. He was acting more like these godless people saying that I'm going to sacrifice something in some way as a kind of way to appease God. But God, in his mysterious kind providence, actually 
answers the prayer of Jephthah, and he gives Jephthah military victory, and Israel is saved in that particular instance. But guess what? The next day he wakes up, and what is the first thing that he sees? His daughter. And so he then has to make good on the vow that he made to the Lord. And the end of Judges chapter 11, it's a wicked scene. It clearly implies that Jephthah makes good on his vow and sacrifices his daughter. And yet, think about this. This is the point. How is the writer of Hebrews using this in Hebrews chapter 11? How does Jephthah, this thug, make it into the chapter of the people who are held up as those who have conquering faith? What's going on there? And then David. David, obviously, he's more easily recognizable to our, our 21st century Bible reading hearts as a good example, but certainly a flawed example. I mean, he did murder a man to cover up his adultery. And then Samuel, who maybe is the best example in all of this lot here in verse 32, who's this prophet slash judge, kind of in this time of transition from the prophets, from the judges to the prophets, but even he foolishly, at the end of his life, appoints his two sons in the place of being prophets, and they absolutely make a mess of things. So none of these men are great examples, really, of conquering faith. They're all flawed. And then there's a kind of summary in verses 34 and 35, sort of of the whole Old Testament, in a way, of the life of Israel, Quench the raging fire. What does that make you think of? Or, or let me go back to verse 33. Who, faith, who by faith conquered kingdoms. Thinking about David. Administered justice. Obtained the promises. Not necessarily the promise of the new covenant. But I think that's referring to like the temporary promises of victory. Like Gideon obtaining the promise of success in battle as God gave it to him. And even men like Jephthah. Shut the mouths of lions. What are you thinking of there? We're thinking maybe of... Daniel and the lions and quench the raging of the fire. Think about Daniel, the early chapters of Daniel, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're walking in the fire. Escape the edge of the sword, which in a sense can be a kind of statement summarizing the life of Israel through the whole Old Testament. Gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. And then there's this kind of ultimate pointing to the resurrection. Women received their dead. And what's that referring to in the Old Testament? There's these two examples in 1 Kings and 2 Kings where Elijah and Elisha, the prophet and his successor, actually bring back a dead child by these two women to life. It's an example of resurrection faith. And what's the point here? What's the point that's being made of these examples, most of them mediocre at best, some of them really bad, and yet he's holding them up as examples of conquering faith. What's the point? What's the nature? What's he saying to us about the nature of conquering faith? Well, two things before we move on to enduring faith. Clearly, first, that the the preacher in Hebrews is not pointing us to the greatness or the, the excellence of sanctification in these particular people Rather, he's pointing us to imperfect people, deeply flawed people, who nevertheless God used. 
That might be the most encouraging thing in all of this chapter. God uses the Jephthahs of the world. God uses flawed people. I was listening to a sermon on this text from a guy that I like to listen to. He just kind of helps me think rightly about the text. He's in New Zealand, and uh, he, he, he referenced what John Calvin said about this passage. Let me read you this quote from John Calvin. I found this really encouraging. Calvin says on his commentary on Hebrews about this particular text, like why would the writer of Hebrews use these men as an example? He says thus, this is Calvin, thus, in all the saints, something reprehensible is ever to be found. Yet faith, though halting and imperfect, is still approved by God. So think about your own life. Think about, don't, can't we all find something reprehensible in our own hearts? Like Jephthah and Gideon and Barak and David. And yet, though halting and imperfect, God, God still holds these people up as an example. That's wonderfully encouraging. Is your faith weak? Is there something reprehensible in you? This chapter, this text, this passage is for you. It's for you. The second thing I think about conquering faith is, this is really important to how to understand the Bible, is that conquering faith here is meant to point us not to mere earthly conquer in our temporal situations, but to ultimate conquer in Christ. What do I mean by that? And we need to understand the purpose of Old Testament stories, Old Testament types, and Old Testament shadows. What does that mean? It means that God, in his wisdom, will hold up a shadow, a scene in the Old Testament. And the point of that scene, like Gideon's fleece, for example, Gideon laying down this blanket and saying, okay, God, make it wet and the ground dry, and I'll do it. And then the next morning, okay, make it dry and the ground wet, and then I'll be okay. What's the point of that? That it's not then that we can import that scene into our lives now and then throw down some sort of prayer fleece. I, I hear prosperity gospel preachers do this often when, when I used to kind of be in that world a little bit. And they would say things like, like you know, I'm going to lay down this fleece about this situation and God's going to meet me there. And therefore, I'm going to interpret this Old Testament scene as in a promise that God now is bound to give me an answer in this earthly situation and to act in a way that if I have enough faith like Gideon, God then will meet me in this situation. And it's, an, it's a misappropriation of the point of the Old Testament. Do you see that? It's making kind of a one-for-one. One. It's saying that this thing... Now, this scene is meant to apply directly that if I will just have enough faith, then God will meet me and give me some victory in the battle that I'm facing. But that's not the point of this text. That's not the conquering faith that the author is pointing us to. These Old Testament shadows and types are meant to be a picture that point to the greater reality of the greater enemy we face, which is not some temporary situation, but ultimately sin and eternity. And it's pointing us to the fact that our victory is in Christ. He's the one that faith in him, faith in Jesus, faith in what he's done, he's the one that shuts the mouth of the lion. 
He's the one that lets us walk through the fire. He's the one that will bring us all the way home. He's the one that will give us victory. And so the point of conquering faith is the cross. And I think that's what's hinted at in verse 35. It says, women received their dead. They were raised to life again. This Old Testament shadow of this human earthly resurrection of these two children in First and Second Kings is ultimately a picture of the resurrection unto life for those that have faith in God through Christ forever. That's conquering faith. Then he goes on to enduring faith. And this is now, it takes a, you know, we're, it's like we're driving along on a road and all of a sudden the rider grabs the wheel and we take a hard left, okay? So we just, midway through verse 35, we're talking about all these military victories in the life of Israel, administered justice, conquered kingdoms, women received their, their, their children back from the dead, period, midway through verse, verse 35, now into enduring faith. We're gonna take a left turn. And some men were tortured, not accepting released, so that they might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Man, verses 35 through 38 is a little different tenor than verses 32 through 35, isn't it? What's going on here? Who is he referring to, first of all? It's this anonymous, nobody's, no names are mentioned. And up to this point, he's been talking about all these Examples, Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses and now these military leaders in the history of Israel. Now just some men were tortured. Some were stoned. Some people think that the prophet Jeremiah in church history, there's, there's evidence that maybe he was stoned. And who was sawn in two? Some people think maybe that was Isaiah, early stories in the church, that maybe that Isaiah the prophet was sawn in two by a wooden saw. But his name... He's not mentioned. He's anonymous. They died by the sword. Think of the countless Christians that, listen, this is important, had just as much faith as Gideon, and David, and Barak, and even this scoundrel Jephthah, who God gave victory to in a temporary sense. And there were others that were far more faithful than that guy who died by the sword anonymously in the annals of history. What's this a picture of? It's almost like he's saying, okay, there's these examples. God has his purposes. But now there's just this regular anonymous, ordinary. This is most of our lot. We are people that have to endure life in a fallen world. And what's the summary phrase of these anonymous heroes of the faith, these ordinary saints? The world was not worthy of them. This is where most Christians have lived in the history of the church. And this conquering faith then takes on this anonymous, enduring faith in the life of God's people. Just a personal reflection here before we move on to the last couple of verses. 
You know, I'm just, I'm chastened and I'm humbled as I read this passage as an American Christian. And this is not some sort of uh, American Christian guilt segment of the, of the sermon. But it is something that I think is, is worth mentioning. It's a kind of chastening that I think we all need to acknowledge. We, we are clearly in our culture facing a cultural decline. There is much confusion, uh, not only outside of the church, but even within the church. And we see much of the church slipping in things that we believe for a long time. And that's causing a lot of consternation and frustration within the American Christian church. And I think it feels like we're in the psalm. I think it's Psalm 137 that says it's Israel's in captivity. They're in the foreign land. And basically they're, they're crying out in a song of lament. And they're saying, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And I think that's a kind of picture of what it means to be a Christian in much of the world today. And maybe more so than ever in America today, how shall, we, how shall we live faithfully in a land that is increasingly seeming spiritually foreign to us? And what, what I think is notable here is that the pastor of Hebrews doesn't shame, doesn't shame these Christians. At times he rebukes them, but he doesn't shame them for their doubt and their weakness and their trepidation. He encourages him. He wants to put gospel steel in their spine. And then I contrast that with some of the debates that we have as American Christians, even culturally, about how we should be more faithful here and more faithful there. And usually, usually the loudest voices of critique are often, not always, but are often the most insecure voices. And I, I don't want to join in that. I think about, as an American Christian, how good we have it. And then when I think about a description of people that, that, that endure this type of, of treatment by the world and then have to endure, I think about my friends in India. I just came back from there a few months ago. And I think about one pastor that I remember meeting there a couple of years ago, and he was beaten by, his, by the local police department and a mob of people. And the pastor that we work with sent me a video that was taken by a member of his church. And I saw this man on this video that he sent me over WhatsApp getting beaten by this crowd, beaten by sticks, by the police, dragged in and questioned by the hostile Hindi government there. And just the, 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 what these people go through, and here I'm complaining, maybe about why some Christians don't think quite as faithfully as they should about secondary issues. Not that those debates shouldn't be had. I think about this text, and I think about one of my first trips to Uganda several years ago. I remember we were doing this pastor's conference, and Pastor Raphael's there, and, and there was this sister there. There was a sister that had come, and she, she was from a kind of neighboring village outside of Kampala. And she stood up, and she introduced herself as, as a pastor. And I can remember the things going on in my heart. I'm thinking, well, you know, theologically, I don't think women should be pastors. I think that's clear in the Bible. You know, but you could say that about, I don't think women should have been judges in Israel back in Judges chapter 4. But, you know, Deborah had to step up because the women... Weren't, I mean, the men weren't rising to the occasion. So the sister's just maybe doing the best she can. And she stood up, and Pastor Raphael introduced her, and she, her husband was the pastor of the church that she was pastoring at that time. And years before, he was killed 
by Idi Amin, one of the worst dictators in all of the 21st century, a man who slaughtered millions of his own people. And this woman stood up, and she was sharing about how she was doing her best to hold together the people of God that she was around at the time. And I think about then just the, the, the frivolity, the, the, really the, the pettiness of much of the things that we complain about in our lives. And I thought about this sister. Every time I read this text, I think about my Indian brothers and I think about this sister whose husband was killed by a crazed dictator. And I think about people that meet the description of verse 38. The world was not worthy of them. And I'm chastened by that. I'm chastened by that. And this is a picture of enduring faith, faith that triumphs. What is enduring faith? It's faith that triumphs over severe difficulty and trial. That's the point of this part of the passage is that the writer of Hebrews knows that his people's hands are trembling and their knees are weak and he doesn't get cynical and chastise them for maybe being wrong about this or that. He wants to encourage them and he's saying to them, hold on, Christ is worth it. He's worth it. And these examples of conquering faith in the past don't mean that you're going to conquer the Roman Empire now. They're a picture of how you will ultimately conquer and so endure in Christ. Hold on. To hold fast to Christ is better by far. That's how these two things relate. So really, the first few verses and these verses about these anonymous people They're really not far apart. It's not ultimately a left turn. They they complement one another. Conquering faith doesn't mean that you're going to conquer every temporal situation. It means that these people, these people, these anonymous ones who were sawn in two, that held on to their commitment to God, they are the ultimate conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the point of this text. And then what does it say? Here in the last couple of verses, approved faith. Approved faith. Verse 39, 40. All these were, all these, look at how he summarizes this. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Okay, what's going on in these last two verses? It's a little, language might be a little tricky on the surface, but I think if we stare at it, And think about it, I think what he's saying is actually quite clear. So think about the beginning of verse 39. He's saying all these, both the conquerors, and I think he's really spanning all of Hebrews chapter 11. All these, the great examples of faith like Abraham and Moses, Noah, and even these ones that were sawn in two. Even Jephthah, in a sense, were approved through their faith. But they did not receive what was promised. What does that mean? In other words, they were in part of the old covenant. And they never ultimately realized the substance of Christ. So they were holding on to the shadow. They were holding on to the, 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 the promise. And what we have, since God has provided something better for us, meaning us, 
believers now in the new covenant. So they were holding on to the shadow. God's given something better for us, which is actually Christ, so that at the end of verse 40, they, meaning the old covenant saints, holding on to the shadow, would not be made perfect without us, meaning they don't go really into glory before us. We all go through Christ. We're all made perfect in Christ. And so what is approved faith? He's pointing us by way of encouragement to these people that were holding on just to the shadow of the promise that they never actually saw in their lifetime. But we have it. We have Jesus. They conquered and endured by trusting in the shadow, but we have the substance of Christ. They looked forward to something they never saw in their lifetime, but we have the great privilege to look back to the cross that we know and forward to the promise of the fulfillment of all that is in him. Friends, that's the gospel. We don't have the promise of future reconciliation. We can look back and say, look, what can this world do to me? All my sins have been nailed to the cross. There's nothing that I can do that can make myself right, but God has done it through his son. Everything that stands between me and God, every contrary part of me, every sin, every evil that still rages inside of me, every kingdom outside of me that wants to defame God or tear him down, Jesus has taken it to the cross and he's died on the cross to redeem me from it. And now I can look back to it as I look forward to the promise of the final and full fulfillment in him. That's, that's approved faith. And I think, I think the whole point, <laughs> this, is, this is encouraging and a bit chastening. I think the point of Hebrews chapter 11 is he's saying all of these Old Testament saints, kind of good and bad, good, bad, and ugly, they were all, they all pressed on even though all they had was the shadow. And they were approved for it. How much more will you? You don't have the shadow. You have the substance. So don't give up. Don't give up. So what's the application of this? Like, how, okay, you know, Brad, thank you. I see that theological point. Well, how does this actually land in our lives? How do we make this our own? How does this go from just merely hearing something that hopefully is theologically true to actually making it yours? Well, then I think that's where something like Gideon's example is helpful. Gideon, like, God, like, okay, Brad, I agree with you. I agree with you that Jesus has died for all of my sins and that God can redeem me from that sinful habit. God can renew my past. But there's part of me Mix it in now with what Tyler read from Mark chapter 9. There's part of me. I know God can resurrect me. I know God can redeem that part of my life. I know he can bring back to life something in me that's dead. I believe it. I believe it. There's part of me that doesn't believe, and so I feel like I'm giddy, and I'm just like, okay, God, I, I, believe, I believe that you can give me victory over this thing. I believe that these things are true. I believe that I will stand before you, and my, all of my sin will be t- is taken away in Christ, and all of his righteousness will be, will be mine. I, I believe it, but you know what? My hands are wobbling. It's been a tough couple months. Situations in my life have really come about where I'm, 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 I'm I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And so I, I feel like Gideon 
And I'm just laying out a blanket, and I'm saying, Lord, how do I, what, is this true for me? And the point of Hebrews 11 is it's legitimate to ask that question. Even these people who had a trembling hand come to God, and we will endure. So how do you bring this into your life? How does it go from a sermon that's hopefully true into your life? Well, friends, we gather we take in these truths, we wrestle, we, we're encouraged by the faith family, we're convinced of these things, we hold on to them in prayer, we come to Jesus and we say, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's why we gather again and again. And so in a sense, our, our Sunday gatherings are not meant to be just the intake of information, but the wrestling of God, the throwing down again and again of the fleece of prayer in the spirit of the Father in Mark 9 saying, Lord, I believe, but Lord, make it true again. Make me, make me stout in the faith again today. That's what it is. That's how we make it our own. Through prayer, through wrestling with the Lord. Now, let me end this thing and let me just say this. We have these great examples of gritty faith. People who call out to God with messy lives, should we not also do the same? And maybe now's the time to do it. Sometimes I, I get a little just concerned about my own soul and our soul as a church when we gather together and we sing songs and we hear a sermon and we pick up our kids and sometimes I feel like we get close to wrestling with God and then we just kind of, oh, well, goodness, my, my, look at the time. We got to go. I'm not reducing the Christian life down to a few minutes after a sermon that's hopefully true. But I am saying that there are times when we just need to respond to the Lord when we need one another, and we're all here right now. We're all here right now. And I read this chapter, and I think about people who just expose themselves to the mercy of God. And I think, can we, in fact, I know there are many, maybe all of us in this room, who to one level or another need to do that now. Can we just, in a moment, I'm going to pray and the worship team's going to lead us in some music. Can we grab a hold of God through prayer? Can we pray for one another? There's people in this room who, um, you know, you come in and you, you take in good stuff, hopefully every week. And, but, you know, sometimes you just need somebody to look you in the eyes. And you, you, need, to, you, need, you need an older brother or sister in the Lord to just put their hands on your shoulders and pray with you that God, that you can hold on. There's people in here who have children away from the Lord and they just need an older saint. <laughs> Put their hands on them and say, I'm going I'm to pray that God does it. Hold on, hold on. There's people in here that are facing medical stuff, health situations, sorrows. And I, I just think now's the time that at least 
in this week, in our moment, now's the time to just come to Jesus and say, I believe, help my unbelief. And I don't know what it looks like for you. Maybe it's turning around in just a moment in your chair, burying your head in your hands and crying out to God and grabbing a hold of the goodness of the promise of God and saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or maybe it's you finding a corner in the sanctuary and not feeling like you got to rush off and just praying, Lord, come, meet me in this moment. Help me endure. Remind me of the conquering faith of Jesus. Remind me that I'm in him and let me hold on again afresh. And some of us need to be prayed for by people that will go to God for us. And you don't just need that. I 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 need that. So I'm going to pray. Worship team's going to lead us. And Tyler's going to conclude our service whenever he feels that we should do that. But in the meantime, let's go to God. Elders, if you would, for those of you that are in the room not serving in children's ministry, if you just kind of make yourself available, maybe in some corner, maybe around the stage. Friends, right now some of you might be uncomfortable. Don't, don't, let's go to God. Please, please, we need Jesus. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I need to endure, Lord, I need to endure. We need to endure. We need you, Jesus. We need to be reminded of the promises that we believe we need it. We need conquering faith. We need enduring faith. We need to be approved by our faith. And and Lord, these things only go from our head to our hearts through prayer, through grabbing a hold of these things by crying out to you, Lord. May we do that. Lord, meet us. Meet us now. In Jesus' name, amen.